is a call to action powered by the marketing and communications learning and development team at Intuit. I'm Moss Okediji. And I'm Brian Marias. A call to action podcast will provide you with insights and practical applications to help you thrive as a modern marketer and communicator. And today we're talking about experimentation, not just the kind of tests that require statistical significance, but how marketers and communicators can use the entire spectrum of experimentation to de-risk their ideas and learn from customers. Yes, absolutely. And it's not just about risk. We want to know how to test the right things, what questions should drive our experiments, and how to make sure we get to the end of a test with clear next steps. Luckily, we have the experimentation experts with us to help. Josh Rabb is the Vice President of Commercial Operations and Technology at Intuit, and Dylan Lewis is an Experimentation Product Manager Leader at Intuit. Welcome to Call to Action. Thanks for having us. It's great to be with you. Yeah, great to be here. I'm so happy you guys are here. I know. I'm (laughs) super happy that you guys are here. You know, this is one of my favorite topics. I do know it's one of your favorite topics. Mine, too. (laughs) Mine, too. It's why we get along so well, Josh. It is. (laughs) All right. Let's start with the basics here. Josh, um, can you remind us again why experimentation is so vital to marketing and communications in particular? You know, our business moves at such a pace, as does business in general these days. And when you're operating in a digital world, you have massive amounts of data at your fingertips. Uh, And there's such an opportunity to capitalize on the data that we have to understand the drivers of our business so that we can figure out what the best possible experience can be for our customers and at the same time ensure that we are moving our business forward, driving growth, and we're doing so in a way that's precise, that gives us answers that we can be confident in as we make critical decisions around everything from the customer experience to how we operate the business and even influencing from the marketing and communication space into our product experiences. What are some of the ways Intuit is trying to make experimentation easier for everyone? Yeah, we've been on a journey for a long time. I started here in 2005, and and when I did, we were a, a small team, and and we ran 40 experiments in about a 16-week period. And now we're, we've gone through many, many iterations of different platforms to be able to make it so that people can experiment faster and more easily. And so we've got teams all across Intuit, more than 50 different application teams running experiments right now, actually. Um, and we do that partially by the Intuit experimentation platform that we've built. Also with the experimentation training about how to do customer-driven experimentation also has helped quite a bit as well to get people to understand exactly what it takes to run great experiments, starting with the customer problem and then working through even like, how do you do a sample size calculation correctly? How do you make sure that you understand what statistical significance is? How do we bake those things into as many different products as possible so that people don't have to learn everything every single time and they can work with their analysts and say, hey, is this better or not? better. And they can easily understand that. And so working through that process from beginning to end and trying to find areas of of opportunity for us to optimize and to make the process even better is what we've been on the journey on and what we're really focused on right now. Yeah. And if I could build Mm -hmm. on that with Dylan, you know, when I think about experimentation, I think of three big buckets that need to all be present, right? There's the experiences, there's the experiment infrastructure, and then there's the data. And if all three of those things are in good shape, we can make it really easy for people at Intuit to run experiments. But all three need to be there. We need to make it really easy to build a new experience and get it in front of customers. We need to make it really easy for that 
experience to be tied in to the experiment framework so that the right parts of the experience are going to the right customers. And then we've got to have good data mm -hmm. so that after the fact, we can see what happened and make a decision. Yep. And even beyond good data, we also need to continue to explore our statistical techniques in order to make it so that we can make the right decision. Um, so, yeah. This is a perfect segue into the next question that I had. And this was around, you know, the role that marketing technology plays. And this is for you, um, Josh and Dylan, feel free to pile on there as well. How does this factor into running easier or more efficient experiments? Yeah, the marketing technology portfolio, a lot of it plays a role in experimentation. You know, at the core, experimentation is a way of running the business. It's a way of thinking about how do we go about our day to day? And if we're going to think about it at that scale, and have it so ingrained in what we do, we're going to need all those different adjacent capabilities to be really well suited to participating in the experimentation process. So the very typical thing you think about when often you start with the conversation of marketing technology is something like a CMS, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we publish our customer experiences on the web, right? And so the CMS is a really important part of that overall process. Um, back to what I was talking about, right? That's That aligns to the experience part. Right. Um, now, data is not just about getting data out of the experience. There's a lot of data that's needed to make sure that we deliver and target the right experience mm -hmm. to the right customer as part of the experiment. And so other parts of the marketing technology stack, whether it be how we collect clickstream data or how we assemble profile data and bring all of those pieces into an aggregate profile that helps us understand customers in an audience level like the CDP, the customer data platform. All of those things start to contribute to this broader infrastructure of tools and platforms that when they're all interconnected can feed into our experimentation process so that we uh, can move with speed, target audiences with very specific experiments, mm -hmm. um, get the right data out and easily understand the analysis and get the statistics built in as D Dylan was pointing at. So there's a lot of components that have to come together there. So Josh, you mentioned experience, infrastructure and data, but we all know that just having data isn't enough to make it so people can actually leverage that data. I wonder if you guys could give um, your description of what a great experimentation culture looks like. Dylan, you want to start? Yeah, certainly. So I think it's, <laughs> it's um, you know, a great experimentation culture in my mind is, is something that uses experiments for almost all decisions were necessary. And so mm -hmm. the the conversation typically goes, hey, I just um, learned this from the customers that this works better than this um, because I just ran or completed an experiment, right? Now, whether that experiment is a traditional A-B test or if it's a pilot that was being run or a prototype that was being run, you're running experiments across all each one of those different capabilities. Mm -hmm. Now, a traditional A-B test with, with full statistical validity, that's really important. That'll actually get you to that point of a go-no-go -go decision, but you're still learning along the way, right? So how are teams utilizing different methods of experimentation in order to be able to go from a, a single idea to robust program or robust set of product features? Yeah. And so that requires a culture of wanting to learn and not just win, right? Right. Exactly. I think it's very aligned to the new Intuit values, right? Whether it's courage, right? Having the courage yep. to think about how the customer experience could be different and come up with 
bold ideas that maybe don't sound right at first. Um, and having that customer obsession to say, you know what, we can always continue to find a way to do better for our customers. Um, and, and then going through the processes to make sure that we have rigor built in from the start around how we leverage all that's great about Intuit from our values to our innovation system to have this experimentation culture that values, like you said a minute ago, values the learning more than anything, right? Exactly. Sometimes you're going to win, uh, but it's the learning that drives everything forward. Um, and when we can all embrace that and not be attached to the win or lose, but be attached to the learning and the journey in the name of our customer obsession, in the name of having courage to try new things, that is a set of ingredients that will make for a really robust and, and forward-looking experimentation culture. Yep, I really love that conversation around courage. And this has been a recurring theme now in, in our episodes. Mm -hmm. And if you already know the answer, so it's not an experiment anyway. Correct. Mm -hmm. So you really do have to embrace the unknown. And let's break down experimentation into parts now, Dylan. What's the best way to approach an experiment? And how do you know the right question to ask? Well, I, I, it just goes right back to the customer-driven innovation framework that we have, right? So I can identify a customer problem. You determine what the ideal state is. And then you try and knock off each of the leaps of faith that would get you to that particular ideal state by trying to ground ourselves on what the right hypotheses are. So we do the same thing with our experimentation platform as well, right? We want people to go as fast and as quickly as they possibly can. So we've identified the critical things and components that are required in order for that to work. And Josh alluded to them earlier. How do we make it so that engineers can build experiences even faster? If we think that that's the longest pole in the tent for getting experiments out there, let's, we have a couple of hypotheses and a couple of uh, technical ways for engineers to work differently. And so we've, we've been experimenting with those with across a couple different teams um, and finding that, yes, there are ways that engineers and teams could build experiences faster. OICMS is one of those. And there's other similar type capabilities inside of the applications that we have. And so we're actually going meta on experimentation on our own platform. But that is how it's working out quite well. Yeah, I love that you said that. And I don't want to like go over it too quickly that mm -hmm. when we're talking about an experimentation culture, it's not just about external customers, although that is obviously the focus, but it's also about how to experiment with our own internal relationships and processes and platforms. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so true. The experimentation is just is not just an A-B test on a website. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of going about your day-to-day -to, -day to think about, okay, um, if I want to improve something, what's my idea? How do I turn that into a hypothesis? How do I then turn that hypothesis into something that would guide me toward an experiment with decisions that I know I would make based on what I might see in the results? And it's in that overall kind of way of operating that experimentation can just become really powerful and just part of the everyday. Yeah, that reminds me of Buddy the, the Dinosaur on Dinosaur Train. I was thinking about that, too. There was when Dylan helped me develop what became the Marketing and Communications Experimentation Full Day Workshop, and he got me to include a video of Buddy the Dinosaur from Dinosaur Train from PBS Kids. Yes. And it's all about what a hypothesis is. It's what I use to be like, this is, let's explain, let's level set. And it's it's a question that you can test. Yeah, exactly. Right? Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I was actually going to ask a very obvious question here, and that is around actually two things. The first one is there are different types of experiments you can run. How do you determine 
what type of experiment to run? Like what determines that? And the second question is what makes for a good hypothesis? What are the components of a great hypothesis? Wow, it's two great questions. So we have in the customer-driven innovation and deep design for delight process, we have defined what a great hypothesis looks like. And so I'll start there. It's if we, and then do something, then we will expect something to happen, which we will measure by some metric. And then success is defined as a particular um, change in that particular metric. And it's not just um, if we change this button, conversion will go up. That is not a great hypothesis. It's if we change this button to finish the sentence, I would like to, then we would see more people click on that button and success for that will be 10% more people clicking on that button, right? And so that gives you a, a better sense about actually what's going to be going on. And so when you actually see that hypothesis and the results two weeks, three weeks, six months later, you can actually really understand what was in the mind of the experimenter. And then you can compare that against the observed results. And so that's that's really what helps you tie the hypothesis to the results. And then back to, did I... And it also makes a hypothesis falsifiable, right? Correct. So you have a threshold. Yep. I love working with marketing and communications teams on strengthening their hypothesis because of the conversations that it leads to. It leads to an alignment on what kind of effect size we're expecting that is actually going to make the work that we're doing worth the effort, right? So sometimes like that, that tiny lift isn't worth the effort and you, and you realize that you need to go back to the drawing board and find a bigger idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we really can't understate how important a good hypothesis is, right? We, we have a lot of tools at our fingertips and we're working to get to a place where those tools are more readily available, easier to use, help us go faster. But with great power comes great responsibility. And the responsibility is to make sure that we're putting in that upfront time to think about why do we have this hypothesis? What observations have we made that have led us to this belief system uh, that's going to turn into some hypothesis? And how do we go through the formula that is incredibly simple, but incredibly powerful that Dylan just outlined Mm -hmm. so that we can make sure we are very clear, not only on what we're trying to change, but what kind of change we expect to observe and what we do about it if we do or don't observe those things. All of that sets up the experiment so that when it runs, we have confidence in the direction we're going and we're not guessing what to do after the fact. Yeah, that wargaming of what's going to happen when the experiment ends is actually super critical for teams to take part in. But that can only happen if you have a very, very clear hypothesis. And in a highly matrix organization like ours, having really clear hypotheses helps things get communicated much faster and makes it so that six months from now, you actually can look back at those things and really understand what was going on. Yep. Um, when we have people that change teams often or may come into the organization at such a high rate, really making sure that we have that knowledge base and that that body of work and that body of knowledge that we've that have gotten us to this point in time where we've built up all these different pieces of, of learning in order to be able to go on to the next stage. And Moss, you talked about what is the right stage for and what is the right experiment to run at each of the individual stages. You know, just in the very beginning, you know, doing rapid prototypes is totally great. Um, then maybe doing a, a small pilot with a group of group of customers or actually going into a painted door A-B test or a dry test is what we call it, just to see what the interest is for those particular features um, so that we can see if we actually have something to go or no go at that point in time. Yeah. And then we might put in the effort to work with the um, engineering teams, the design teams on something that's even more robust um, and could be actually rolled out for us to learn that next, that next thing that we have to learn. 
And so it just depends on where you are in the process and what it is that your, your goals are for the quarter determines what part of the experimentation life cycle or experimentation type life cycle, I should say, you really are at, right? If you've already developed an entire website, you know, you're going to want to back test that and make sure that you actually made the right mm -hmm. decision. And you may only hold back 10% um, and roll it out there to everybody else. But if you're not even at that point, you might be just doing prototyping with card sorting with, with customers. And so there's just this gamut of different types of of experimentation or, or learning capabilities, I guess is probably a better word for it, um, that you'll want to explore. It goes to what, what Scott Cook, our founder, the founder of Intuit says, which is that it's I, prioritizing what you need to know and figuring out what is the riskiest pieces and then finding the cheapest, fastest ways to test it. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say that's, that's something I always think about is what is, what is the least investment possible to go the fastest now and get to the meaningful result you're seeking. And Dylan highlighted a number of those great techniques, whether it's, you know, the, kind of the, um, in front of the customer, real time sketching and drawing mm -hmm. or those dry tests. Um, how does that investment match up with the opportunity you have to learn? And at some point you get to a place where I've got so much data and information informing my hypothesis that it makes sense to make a bigger investment with technology and code in the experimentation framework. Um, but those are times that you know have a, tend to have a bit of a bigger cost. Now we're working to reduce that cost with a lot of ancillary tooling, but nevertheless, when you have those bigger costs, you wanna go into those tests feeling more confident based on the early research you've done, the early low fidelity testing you've done. You know, one tip for marketers and communicators out there is um, the new marketing and communications competencies. Uh, one of them is analytical mindset. And if you look under analytical mindset, um, the, you know, customer-driven experiments and using hypothesis-driven testing to make data-backed decisions, that's core to it. And so being good at writing hypotheses and doing the research and coming from a data-backed informed place is important to all of us. And it's a way to go about things, gets all of subjectivity out of the room and makes it very objective, right? And that's when things start to move really fast. Yes. As the analytical mindset coach, one of the things I've gotten to do with teams is work with them to identify what their leap of faith assumptions are and develop a hypothesis library. So let's just build out all of the things we want to know and the questions and the things that that just build out our hypotheses. And that window of high value, high risk, right, is, is sort of that two by two matrix that really gets you to what are the things that you're going to prioritize right yeah. now? Or what are the things that you're going to prioritize as quickly as possible, depending upon what resources are there to help build out that feature or that particular thing that is going to be required to give you the signal of whether or not you're moving in the right, right direction, right? Yeah. I want to circle back and ask about how experimentation is not just for learning, but also to d decide disputes, right? To decide different people's opinions, if you will. And I was hoping that, Dylan, you could tell me what a hippo is. Uh, it's the highest paid person's opinion. And so that's came out of some of the learnings that we had in 2005. And then we actually called it the highest paid opinion. And then uh, Avinash Krushik uh, was having a conversation with Ronnie Kohavi and they had to change it from HPO because that's a high performer in the organization that he was Did in. Did Avinash work at Intuit? A Avinash worked at Intuit when I was here. Yeah, oh. he actually interviewed me. Um, oh, and wow. so, yeah, it was great. Um, he's an interesting, interesting person and an amazing thinker. 
Um, and so, uh, he, yeah, he was here when I started. He was in the central team running the digital analytics team um, up at Intuit.com. And so, yeah, so he made that conversation, that connection with Ronnie Kohavi, and, and Ronnie just took the um, idea of the hippo and just ran with it. And so uh, the uh, highest paid person's opinion, well, you know, there's been some recent research about that, actually, about the involvement of the highest paid person's opinion. And it's very, very helpful to have them involved in that they can help undo some roadblocks and make it so that things can get experimented with. But the paper that's been released by Stephen Tomke is something that if you're really interested in and in going into like what are some of the benefits or some of the ways in which experimentation can be better it says that well that that's helpful um, but really having that customer driven approach is much more helpful also the other thing that was found in that paper that I thought was really interesting was that you know just having an A and a B you're less likely to win or have big wins if your organization is predominantly using just an A and a B and so how do you actually increase the number of different treatments that you have in your experiment because you have more at-bats at that point in time. And so you have actually more potential innovations that could make it so that you find the right answer faster by having more than just two. And unfortunately, we currently, about three quarters of our experiments are two treatments mm. or so, right? And so we actually have a huge opportunity to make it so that we can have more treatments and use some other statistical techniques in order to be able to find the winners faster. Yeah. And sometimes to get more treatments, it's it's less about can we set up the experiment and more about can we create all of those experiences. And so that's a tie back to the marketing technology. That's why having these adjacent capabilities is so important so that the full system can allow us not only to just get tests done quickly, but to do them in a robust way and give us more chances of being right. I love the at-bats analogy, right? Like how often can you get an at-bat and have a chance of getting that hit? And um, yeah, that, that's a lot of what we think about as we think about this systemically. I wanted to circle back what you had raised, Dylan, about the highest paid person's opinion, because I know that, you know, even when you have access to data, you need to be able to tell the story. What is your point of view on that, on the role that storytelling plays in communicating um, insights from data? Oh, my goodness, that is absolutely critical. Um, coming from an analytics background, figuring out exactly the right way to, to think about the data to help form the hypothesis is so critical and making sure that you have the right background and the right insights. And that's actually um, not something that's inherent in what it is that we do. And it's something that can be learned, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so how do you go about and really understand, hey, people that went through this page were 50% more likely to convert. Well, yeah, but that page is in, in a conversion you know, a, a, a high conversion path, right? So you can't just say, throw that page up to more people. You actually have to figure out what it is that helps make it so that those people go through that page. And so you have to really understand and go back to what is the insight that will actually make it so that I can form a good hypothesis to put the correct treatment or the correct intercept um, for those particular people to help them either convert at a higher rate or convert at, at a more happier rate, right? With a higher PRS score, for example. Those things are really, really important. And so it's really difficult to just jump in without really going back to the competencies or really going back to even the new academy that's just started up as well, um, which has a number of different training sessions for becoming more um, data focused and insight driven. And there's another tie in there to the overall broader work we're doing. And you know, one thing that I think we've made tremendous progress on over the last year, maybe a little more, is our clickstream data collection. Um, but we continue to work at that and improve it. And, you know, when you're thinking about your experiment, one of the things is you can't take it for granted that the metric you're trying to affect is available. 
right? And so there may be some things up front that need to be done to make sure you can actually measure uh, the impact you're trying to make. And so there is a bit of a broadened aperture that's needed as you're thinking through an experiment. And that upfront thought about what am I trying to measure? Can I measure it? Uh, those are things that are going to really influence your ability to be successful once the test is in market. Yep. And Josh, as a senior executive, you know, what advice do you have for a marketer or a communicator coming to you for you to make a decision or for you to approve a decision? What are the core elements of that data storytelling that you look for? Yeah, you know, my aspiration is that I'm never really having to approve those types of decisions. Um, my aspiration is that we've got the data and the tooling uh all available to all of our marketers and communicators, that everybody understands the competencies and these techniques and how to use them. And when they go about following these processes that we've been talking about for the past 30 minutes or so, mm -hmm. uh, the result is self-evident, mm -hmm. right? We've got a really good hypothesis. We had a decision plan ahead of time. We observed the experiment. We followed the decision tree within the experiment. And then what we're talking about is less about should we make this decision? Because we kind of already outlined what decision we'd make mm -hmm. to begin with. Yep. More we're then talking about how do we go bigger? How do we do something else that's even more impactful? And those are the more fun conversations to have anyway. The other thing there, there Josh, you know, is the whole idea about savoring the surprise mm -hmm. too, right? And so we've already got the decision tree. We've already got the decision actually already made, as you pointed out, before the experiment runs, if we get to those, those results. But then there's always that check of like, hey, was there anything surprising about this experiment that we could actually oh, totally. we yeah. can use someplace else, right? And so we found that uh, many times when I was working in TurboTax, um, things that were just really interesting. It's like, oh, well, if that's really the case, then we can apply it over here. Um, and so making it so that you can actually take it and, and run with it even bigger. So, yeah. Yeah. Those unexpected insights are those that that's when it gets really fun. And, and when you when you have all of the upfront rigor put into the system so that when you're reading the experiment, you're not worried about and, and arguing even, you know, what what are we seeing and what decision are making? That's the, when the environment's ripe to be able to start to see those surprises. Yep. I totally agree with Dylan. That's that's such a fun part of the whole thing. That's super helpful. And I think what you're highlighting here, and Brie, feel free to jump in, is how important the upfront alignment mm -hmm. is. Making sure that you have that decision tree, making sure you have that decision plan ahead so you're not spending time trying to negotiate and as you said, Dylan and Josh, it's about savoring the surprises, but putting work into what needs to be done in the beginning is actually very important. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I, I want to make sure it doesn't sound like it's a whole lot of upfront effort. This can actually be a very light type of think thought process and exercise. Um, the way that Dylan was describing some of these frameworks, they're not deep they're they're just super impactful probably because they're so simple um, but but just by doing them is where you get the benefit so it's the same thing with dieting right so not having that extra dessert <laughs> right it's something very very simple that we all know what to do um, it's just you actually have to do it right you have to make time to do it or make the choice to do it i'd like to go back i think you know we've talked about hypothesis a lot in this conversation and it keeps coming back up I'd like to understand, um, Dylan, if you've seen, like, what are the barriers? I think in the beginning, it was really, um, do we have a place for people to just write down their hypotheses, right? And so just having these small 
tools, these small, simple things that people can do has really helped raise the bar and raise people's awareness about what it is that they're doing. Um, and I think it's really, really helped. Yeah, one thing I would add is like um, hypothesis creation is is very much a, a creative process, right? It's the creative part of your brain that's mm. working on thinking through what should this hypothesis be? Where do I get my data to base it on? You know, everything that goes into that. And so like anything where, where you've got to be creative, whether you're writing or coding or designing, whatever that is, you've got to set aside enough time to let your brain get into that mode. Right. And you've got to do it at a time when your brain is capable of getting into that mode, right? So mm -hmm. people are usually fresh in the morning and people usually have a hard time context switching and doing some quick work between meetings. Um, so one thing I would suggest and having the, the tools to support it is amazing, but also just forcing yourself to take the time to have that creative mind space. Mm -hmm. And the process is, like Dylan showed, very lightweight. So the combination of the two really should yield some great results. Brianne, I know you just worked with a team and you know, at the end of the session you had with them, they walked away with multiple mm -hmm. hypotheses. What do you think worked in that scenario? I think that what worked is spending the kind of going back to what Josh just spoke to about having that creative space. The reason we were successful in coming up with a hypothesis library is because we spent just 15 minutes brainstorming every possible assumption that would need to be true for the solution to work. And that created then a list of assumptions that needed to be true, our leap of faith assumptions. And that is our go and test list. And so we created the hypothesis library off of that. And it was a very organic, very strong way of creating this process that it's customer driven, it's based on a customer problem, and it leads to exactly what we need to know in order for this idea to work and deliver a customer benefit. And, and just to be, just to underline that, you don't need to go through a two-day D4D session in order to be able to get to that point. Yeah. You just said that you did it in 15 minutes. And you probably mm -hmm. had some context setting before that. Um, so maybe you did it, do it all in an hour. I don't, I don't know exactly how much time. But it isn't, doesn't require an entire day sitting in a sequestered room to be able to do this. It doesn't. But I also know that because we're all working from home these days, and I know that as a huge extrovert, doing brainstorming by myself <laughs> is really challenging. And there's tools that we have like Mural that are collaborative brainstorming tools. And it's so easy just to tap a friend and have them come into your brainstorm so that you're not by yourself and you spend 15 minutes and have some amazing ideas be generated from that session. Yep. I'm loving that in this conversation, we're actually breaking down barriers already around the fact that you don't really need a lot of time to be able to get your hypothesis and that, you know, it's not a lot of upfront work that needs to happen. All of these things are simple things that you can actually action. So that's that's great. What's also great is that in Degreed, Brie has put together the customer-driven experimentation um, uh, learning path. And so anybody should be able to go through that learning path if they want to and, and learn more about many of these different techniques that we've talked about today. Thanks for that plug, great. Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great plug because Bree's done some amazing work there. I, I would recommend you guys check it out. It's, it's pretty awesome stuff. All of the work I did was only wonderful because of the amazing brain power that I was able to tap into to create training that really helped the organization. So it's all you guys. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so much love going around. <laughs> all right. Now let's talk about data. Um, how do you decide what your success metrics should be? It has to letter up to what your hypotheses are, right? And so... If your hypothesis is, 
I want to know how many people are interested in um, QuickBooks Live, right? So your success metric, and you're doing a dry test, your success metric really comes down to, all right, well, how do I gauge interest? Well, I gauge interest by people clicking on on the particular product and, and going to the next step. So that that may it may be as simple as that, right? Um, or it may be as complex as I want to understand how um, we can increase PRS for the entire ecosystem, right? And so it's, it all goes back to what your goals are and what it is that you have to um, anchor on in order to be able to determine are you able to answer this hypothesis or are you able to, to falsify this hypothesis or are you able to actually um, meet this leap of faith? You know, what I'd add to that is oftentimes it's easier to wrap your head around what behaviors am I trying to observe? And if you think about what customer behaviors are trying to observe, then you can go to, well, okay, what metrics um, support those behaviors? As opposed to the other way around, sometimes it may be a little hard. Do I pick this metric? Do I pick that metric? Well, an experiment is about influencing behavior. Uh, and then if you start to get into that thought process, it'll lead you to the metric. And so ultimately, you're going to be aware of how much revenue that campaign drove, for example, but fundamentally finding that metric that is closer to the behavior and closer to the test that you're running is going to give you a clearer read on whether or not you're having the impact you're expecting. Yep, absolutely. Yes, I agree. But you also want to make sure that you've identified your guardrail mm -hmm. metrics too, right? So. Mm -hmm. These are the metrics I want to improve. These are the metrics I want to make sure that I don't go outside of a control limit. Yeah. Um, and so you're watching those as well to make sure that there's no egregious thing happening with um, the the members of our site or the, of our customers to make it so that we can actually understand exactly what's going on. And that we have a well-formed experiment that isn't um, inadvertently creating some sort of surprise down the road. Yeah. Right? So we want to make sure we're looking and see, are we getting additional customer care contacts because of this experiment? Well, if we are, then we should consider turning it off. Right. Mm -hmm, um, so mm -hmm. really, really important to also think about the, the counterfactuals as well. So that's a great call out on guardrail mm -hmm. metrics. Um, Cause I, I don't think we think about that enough. Yeah. Another question I have for you is around repeating experiments. Is there ever a, a case for repeating experiments that have been run? Yes, that test retest validity is actually really, really important, right? So we actually have run experiments and the results were, were really, really encouraging, um, but we weren't seeing those results in the overall business. And so we would rerun that same experiment and say, yes, it, this, this is the right experience to have out for customers. They'd actually do perform better by having this experience, but maybe, there, maybe there's something else going on in the, in the organization or in the, in the, um, in the environment that's making it so that our business performance isn't where we want it mm -hmm. to be. So we did have the right experiment. We did have the right experience. Uh, we validated that twice. We got similar results. Um, and so we were like, okay, well, that's, that's great. So now how do we, how do we go beyond that? Right. And so we don't question those results anymore. We don't have two experiments that said almost the exact same identical thing. Um, and so we can move beyond that. So. Yeah. Testing the same thing more than once is, is, is a great thing to do. Um, you know, one thing to do with that to make sure that you're clear on what you're trying to accomplish is thinking through as part of the hypothesis process, asking yourself, what is different now? What has changed? There's so many things that can change sometimes on an hourly basis if you think about tax speak. Um, and so when you're going to do that experiment again, inform your hypothesis by asking yourself, what's different now? Because that, that'll help lead you to the right place. And this was actually in tax as well. And so it was a, an experience that we had rolled out. Didn't know if it was working quite as well as it, as it should have been. Uh, and we tested and retested it and got very similar results in both, both experiments. So. And they're different parts of the season, right? So you would you would expect there to be some difference there because more forms are available, or so on. So there was there was a small difference, but it was a difference that was acceptable. Mm -hmm. So um, 
Great, great. We like to close every show by asking our guests one action item that our listeners can take away and do today, this week, or this month. Josh, what is yours? You know, I, I bet you Dylan's going to say something similar, but uh, mine would be to take a moment to think about first, what's something that you think you could test? Second, what insight is that based on? And third, try to follow a really lightweight process to write a hypothesis and prove to yourself that it can be done really effectively, really quickly. And Dylan? Yeah. So you did say what I was going to say. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Say it a different way. Exactly. You know, I think ask yourself, what are you going to experiment with today? Right. And so whether it be in your career, whether it be in a particular meeting, whether it be in how you interact with somebody, um, what are you going to do to make it so that you're constantly improving your own craft, our customer's experience, into it in total? What experiments are you going to run today? Love that, Dylan. What a great way to end this. <laughs> Josh Rabb is the Vice President of Commercial Operations and Technology at Intuit. And Dylan Lewis is Experimentation Product leader at Intuit. Thanks for chatting with us. This has been amazing, you guys. Thanks, guys. It was so fun. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was awesome. That was such an incredible session with Dylan and Josh. And I'm so, we're so lucky we got to spend time with them. I have been thinking about my key takeaways and Mm -hmm. I wanted to share them with you, Moss. I can't wait to hear. (laughs) The first one is all around that importance of a great, strong, testable hypothesis right? And how having that established ahead of time is the thing that drives the learning. Um, And speaking of learning, experimentation done well is not win or lose. It's all about learning. Exactly. I loved that, you know, they emphasize that it's a learning experience and actually most experiments fail. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. And how, how that can be such an exciting thing if that failure is making it so you're not wasting your time or your partner's time down the road. Yeah. 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 And the last thing thinking about our partners, it's that experimentation is a team sport. The idea that we all have to go in it together and that it's cross functional and driving that approach as a team is going to create such a, a stronger culture of experimentation here. Hashtag stronger together. Right. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you said it all there, Bree. Um, you know, one key thing that I'm taking away is, you know, you talking about how you worked with with a team, and you know, in 15 minutes they generated multiple hypotheses. I loved that Dylan also talked about the fact that it's a creative experience. That got me mm-hmm. thinking, and I'm like, you know what? I want to do a hypothesis brainstorm. Um, you know, and you know. I think looking at it through the lens of a creative experience actually opens up a lot of opportunities and it takes away barriers around like the structure of it. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to set up time moss, I can help you develop some of those, those hypotheses. Absolutely. Thank you, Brie. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> That's it for this episode of A Call to Action. We would love to hear from you. So drop us a note with feedback, questions, or ideas at a call to action podcast at intuit.com. And make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Call to Action is a production of the Global Marketing and Communications Learning and Development Team at Intuit. Thanks for joining us.